Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today on Mother's Day Sunday, one of my favorite Sundays all year long. And it's so good to see uh, so many moms here this morning. We thank you for all that you do. And if you are not a mom, but you're married, we understand this. You're, mar you're mothering someone, amen? And uh, we understand that, and we're grateful for all of you ladies that are here today, mothers or not. We're grateful for every one of you and excited about this opportunity to celebrate you and uh, commemorate a special day here every year. Uh, we're going to be finishing up our series, Change Lives, today. And as I looked at the sermon calendar I realized that probably one of my more impassioned messages was going to fall here on Mother's Day, and it has to do with the subject of giving life. And so I figured, well, uh, who else uh, gives life besides mothers? Amen. And, and it's uh, going to be a little bit more of a, a strong message, if you will. But if you'll find yourselves and turn with me to Acts chapter 1 this morning, I was trying to really nail down a title uh, for the message this morning, and you have this group of, of men and women, for that matter, and they're discouraged, they're disillusioned, they're trying to gather themselves, they're trying to figure out their purpose and to carry on, and the only thing that kept coming to my mind for a title was, Carry On My Wayward Sons. I don't know, um, uh, but that's uh, uh, what we're talking about here this morning, the disciples carrying on the mission that uh, Jesus established during his lifetime. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin here in just a bit in verse 1. Now, the book of Acts has commonly been come to be known as the Acts of the Apostles. Some people will call it the Acts of the Early Christians. I would think it would be uh, appropriately subtitled the Continuing Acts of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in his people. Now, the author of the book of Acts is none other than Dr. Luke, the physician. Now, it starts this way. It says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, in his first volume, Luke wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In, in fact, the Gospel of Luke describes all that Jesus did and taught. And then in Acts, Acts presents what happens after Jesus is taken up. The Holy Spirit then empowers first the apostles and then the church and then subsequent Christians and churches. Now, there are contrasts between Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. Now, in Luke, Jesus offered his life. In Acts, Jesus offers his power. In Luke, Christ is crucified and risen. In Acts, Christ ascends and is exalted. In Luke, we see Jesus models the Christian life as lived by the God-man. In the book of Acts, Jesus models it as it's lived out through imperfect men. Now, in Acts, we see how God takes this group of disillusioned, discouraged, confused men and women, and we see how God uses them to carry on and to literally turn the known world upside down. 
Now, God had to first confirm the resurrection power that Jesus was about to unleash upon his followers by Jesus showing himself to his disciples over a 40-day period before he ascends into heaven. Now, the Bible tells us in verse 3, it says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, the word proofs occurs only here in the New Testament and points to the demonstrable evidence in contrast to the, wit uh, the, the evidence of the witnesses. Now, in other words, the resurrection was proven by touch, sight, and hearing. In other words, all the senses of the disciples. And not only do we find the 500 witnesses mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in those first verses there, but we find obvious evidence pointing to Jesus' de deity and his resurrection here in Acts chapter 1. Now, Jesus spoke to them throughout these 40 days of things concerning, the Bible says, the kingdom of God. Now, this kingdom was a kingdom of truth. And this truth was to be lived out in the followers of Jesus, culminating in a future time in a millennial kingdom. Now, until then... The disciples were to live out the teachings of Jesus, which would further change their lives and ultimately the world. Now, in our text, we see three instructions Jesus gives to those whose lives were changed. Now, these three instructions are applicable for us today if we are to carry on as world changers. Now, first of all, Jesus tells them to wait. Notice the text, Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now the apostles were instructed to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, the Father had prophesied to the uh, Israelis in the book of Ezekiel that he would give them new hearts and literally put his spirit within his people. The disciples didn't quite understand exactly what that was all about, but they knew it was going to be something extraordinary. So no doubt they thought of the promise as was given to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 11 where God says, and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they shall walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Or maybe he was, uh, uh, the disciples were thinking about the promise as given in Ezekiel 36, which is very similar to Ezekiel chapter 11, where God in essence says the same thing. A, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And verse 27, and I'll put my spirit within you, and will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now Jesus spoke to them of something that they had been hoping for and anticipated. The promise of the Father, the literal baptism of the Holy Spirit, God's literal own spirit indwelling each and every one of them. Now, Jesus was speaking of God's spirit ultimately uniting them as one cohesive unit as he spoke of in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. It says, and I will give them one heart, one heart. 
God's Spirit would take these scattered sheep and unify them under Jesus' purpose and power. And the Spirit, we need to understand, helps Christians to be in unity one with another. Now, when Christians are yielded to the Holy Spirit of God, instead of their desires, the desires of the flesh, the Spirit brings unity as a fruit in the home, in relationships, and yes, even in the church. And this is exactly what Paul was speaking of when he wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free. The Spirit of God unites the people of God and allows them to be able to function as one cohesive unit. It's interesting that the book of Acts is a book of transitions. Now, we see the gospel transitioning from Jews in Acts chapter 2 to Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. We see a transition in leadership from Peter uh, early on to James and then to Paul. We see a transition from the center of activity being in Jerusalem and those areas around Jerusalem uh, to Antioch, where then the missionaries are sent off in Acts chapter 13. But we also see the Holy Spirit coming upon his disciples and transitioning to them in at least five different ways. In fact, they waited, and then as they waited in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came upon them as cloven tongues of fire. And as he did, the Spirit of God gave them the ability to speak and every person to hear in their own language. The only time you see the gift of tongues ever in operation in the Scriptures is in Acts chapter 2. And when God allowed it to be manifested, people heard the gospel in their own language. Not some language that only God and angels understand, but people heard the gospel in their own language, and the end result was people came to faith. In fact, at the, in the middle of Acts chapter 2, towards the end, 3,000 people were saved and were baptized. Now, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, you repent and be baptized, and then you get the Holy Ghost in verse 38. In Acts chapter 4, we see that they prayed and they received the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 8, they prayed and they laid hands on people and they received the Holy Ghost. And lastly, to Gentiles, in Acts chapter 10, they believed, and when they believed, the moment they believed, they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, today, we don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to indwell us as believers. He is not some second blessing that comes at some undetermined time in the life of the believer. In fact, the moment we are saved today, the moment we realize we're sinners, we can't save ourselves, we need Jesus as our Savior, we need to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus by faith and receive Him as the payment of our sins and the Lord of our life, the moment we do that, we receive the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, Ephesians tells us this. It says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that you believed, the moment you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Bible tells us you believe and then you receive the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit is. He is the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, we don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us to live like a child of a new kingdom. But there are some things that we have to wait on today as Christians. 
Sometimes we have to realize that we have to wait for God's Word to do its work in our lives and in the lives of those people that we know and love. In fact, Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 55. It says, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and it maketh to bring forth a bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So there's a process there. You sow a seed, you put it in the ground, you water it, you cultivate it, and after a while you're going to bring forth the fruit of a harvest, a crop. And the Bible goes on to say this in verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So God's word is always doing a work whether we realize it or not. But sometimes we have to wait to see that work bear some fruit. So we have to wait for that. Secondly, we have to wait sometimes on God in prayer. Matthew 7 says, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And the, the, the words there, ask and seek and knock, are in the linear in the Greek, which means to ask and to ask and to ask and to ask. And to seek and to seek and to seek and to seek. And to knock and to knock and to knock and to knock. And then the Bible goes on to say, um, in the next verses it says, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And sometimes I want you to understand, God's answer is not always the answer that you want. Sometimes God's answer is no. So we have to wait on God in prayer. And then sometimes... Every one of us, at least at some moment in time in our Christian life, will have to wait as we deal with the trials of life. It never ceases to amaze me the endurance that the human spirit coupled with the strength of the Spirit of God can endure. Uh, some of you, the things that you've endured, some of you, the things that you've been through, it never ceases to amaze me how God's power and God's spirit and God's word can sustain people in even some of the most distressing of times. And here's how James puts it in James chapter 1 and verse 2. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or test, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh what? Patience. Patience. None of us want to wait to go through a patient endurance of tribulation. But notice what the Bible goes on to say, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and entire, wanting nothing. In other words, the only way that we're ever going to get to maturity is if we endure the trials of life patiently. And that takes us waiting on God through those times. Now, in our generation of instant oatmeal and instant rice and instant coffee, by the way, it's usually nasty, amen, and instant information, uh, pulling out your phone and getting whatever information you want at the uh, press of a button or the, the speaking of a command. And by the way, Google's way better than Siri, amen. In the day of instant goods, uh, going to Amazon and ordering something on Amazon, and then that day usually 
That day at your doorstep, you get the knock or the doorbell ring that you all love to hear. Or you get the notification on your phone where an email is sent and your package is delivered. Now, in the day of instant goods and instant groceries and instant food where you drive through a drive through and five minutes is too slow for some of you. Bless God, can't Culver's get their act together? Don't they know I want my food now? In our day of instant everything, we as Christians struggle in the Christian life because we struggle with the discipline of waiting. You know what? So did the disciples. In fact, in our text, the Bible says, and when they were therefore come together... They asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? I know you've uh, been crucified. I know you were in the tomb for three days. I know you've resurrected. We've seen you for 40 days. But is it finally here? Is it time? Are you going to restore your kingdom? Is it now? As the disciples thought about the pouring out of God's Spirit upon God's people, the disciples automatically assumed that Jesus was going to restore Israel as a new kingdom. Their minds were filled with hope as they walked with Jesus for three and a half years and saw him do the incredible. Now, having conquered death and promising the Spirit, they automatically assumed that Jesus would conquer Rome and fulfill the rest of the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 36, where it says... In verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So they automatically, their minds went to that, and they thought, is it now? And Jesus had to correct them to clearly understand that the time wasn't yet. Verse 7, he said unto them, it is not you for no, to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. He again tells them to wait. He tells them to wait. And let me say this. Christians, you don't have to wait on the Spirit. If you're saved, you have the Spirit of God now. But let me encourage you to wait on God. Continue to wait on God as you pray. Continue to wait on God uh, and His Word to do its work in your life. Continue to wait on God as you patiently endure the trials of life so that patience can have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and entire wanting nothing. And then Jesus tells them and instructs them to witness. Notice the text, verse 8, But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Instead of fixating on whether or not this was the time of the end, the times and the seasons, Jesus encouraged them to testify of the things that they already know. Instead of looking forward to something that was unknown, Jesus tells them to focus on the things that they already know and the things that they've already experienced. Now, a witness is somebody who testifies of the things that they have seen and heard. And these sons of, of, of followers of Jesus needed to carry on the work that Christ had begun earlier on in his ministry. Now, the word witness occurs no less than 39 times in the book of Acts. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 2, uh, as Peter is preaching at Pentecost in his sermon, uh, Peter says this, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. As he's preaching to this crowd, some of the people that cried out a few weeks earlier, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, all understood that Jesus uh, had raised from the dead, and they all understood that there were witnesses of these things. Their senses had experienced them. They had heard him. They had seen him. They had, uh, had been around him to maybe even touch him and so they'd experience him in a very uh, uh, distinguishable way so you could not deny it so Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he says we're all witnesses of these things in Acts chapter 4 as uh, Acts chapter 3 as uh, Peter is uh, just healed this man at the gate beautiful and and then gets on a, a porch known as Solomon's porch uh, he begins to preach of them of Jesus and this is what he says and it says that you killed the prince of life whom God hath raised up from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. In Acts chapter 10, as he's, uh, Peter is reaching the house of Cornelius, a Gentile home, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles were always at odds with one another. In fact, the Jews would look at the Gentiles and they would say, thank you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile. They looked at Gentiles, non-Jewish people, on the same level that they looked at dogs. Or what we would say today, they looked at Gentiles on the same level as pond scum. And Gentiles to them. And so Peter has this vision in, in, in Acts chapter 9 and 10, and Peter sees this vision of unclean animals, and the, the Lord speaks to Peter, and Peter in his vision, is, in his dream, is, is saying, Lord, I've never eaten anything or touched anything unclean. And, and, and God says to Peter, that which I've made clean is clean. And Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile's home. He gives him the gospel, and he gets saved. And here in the sermon to them, he says this, and we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in, the, in Jerusalem who they slew and hung on a tree. In Acts chapter 22, as, as uh, Paul is before the Jewish elders after he's been arrested and put in prison, he's given an opportunity by the Roman soldiers to, to speak to his Jewish countrymen as he's come back to Jerusalem. And Paul says these words, for thou shalt be a witness unto all men of the things that thou hast seen and heard. Now, to be a witness for Jesus is to bring a message that is simple, but a message that has come with a great cost. Now, I don't believe in a cheap salvation because our salvation didn't come with a cheap cost. It came by the greatest cost. Uh, the blood of God's very own son, Jesus Christ, was shed so that all men could be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But as we think of the gospel, we understand this. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He died to pay for our sins. He was resurrected and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He calls us to believe in him and so receive forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing to join. There's no system to perform in. Just a person to repent and receive Jesus as Lord and also eternal life. But if we are to be effective witnesses for our Savior, we cannot be spectators in the game of life. We have to roll up our sleeves and we have to testify of the things that we have seen and heard. We have to let people know if, if Jesus is so important to us, why aren't we sharing our faith with others? 
Our lives also must display the inner reality of what we externally proclaim, that is. And that's why the gospel raced across Asia and raced across Europe and the first world and the world in the first century because these people really meant what they said and the gospel really changed their lives. The apostles walked their talk and the lives of those who received the gospel had truly changed. Now, some people today that claim faith, I've been saved, I've received Jesus as my Savior, and nothing ever happens in their life. Now, let me explain something. I'm not a fruit inspector, neither are you. I don't have the permission and the authority to, to clap on somebody, a grade A Christian or grade B Christian. That's not our job. But here's what I know what the gospel did in the first century. The church at Thessalonica they so change. Here's what the Bible says of them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, For they themselves show us what entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Literally, people put down their idols. People put down the things that were keeping them from God, and they literally turned from them. They repented them to wholeheartedly serve the true and the living God. Let me ask you this morning, is our witness like that? Is that what has happened to us? The apostles were passionate for Jesus. We see that in Peter at Pentecost, where he basically accuses the people that had come to the feast of Pentecost of killing Jesus Christ. The Bible says at the end of his sermon, the men were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter says, you really want to know what to do? Repent. And they did. They did. We see that in Stephen as he was stoned and you see a story in Acts chapter 6 and 7 as uh, he's giving this articulate sermon to the Jewish Sanhedrin and, and at the end of his life you have these men throwing these large stones and, and, and hurling them at Stephen to snuff out his life and as that is all going on he says, Lord, lay not this sin against their charge. You see that passion in the, the heart of Paul as he's at Athens where it was easier to find a false god than it was to find a man. And, and he's reasoning in the marketplace with the Athenians and they were very knowledgeable and they were very educated. In fact, they spent their whole day about, uh, doing nothing but arguing back and forth about philosophy. And so they invited this speaker by the name of Paul, Paul of the Bible, Paul the Apostle, and he, he stands in front of the Areopagus, which we know as Mars Hill, and you have this theater filled with all these intellectuals, and Paul gets up and he stands with passion to tell them about Jesus. And the Bible says, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul, but just a few. <laughs> You see this all throughout the book of Acts. These men and these women filled with passion. The gospel had changed them so thoroughly that they literally turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They literally, their worlds were changed and turned upside down. But the thing was, the disciples could not witness in and of their own strength. They needed supernatural power that would come when the Holy Spirit empowered them. The word for power here in our text is the Greek word dynamis, from which we get the word dynamite. It says, but you shall receive 
power, dynamis. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. You see, this power enables followers of Jesus to do that which they not, could not ordinarily do. This power breaks strongholds. This power breaks stony hearts. This power changed Paul from being a persecutor to one of the greatest promoters of Christianity. This power was authenticated early on by miracles in the hands of the apostles, and God is still manifesting his power today. People will ever once in a while come to me and they'll say, well, I just don't believe in God. And they'll say, well, why don't you do this for me? Are you sincere about not knowing and that you want to know? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, okay, here's what I want you to do. For the next week, several times throughout your day, I want you to pray something like this. I want you to pray, God, you've never been a part of my life. You've never been a part of my culture. You've never been a part of my spirituality. But God, I'm calling on you, the God of the Bible, to make yourself known to me. And do that several times a day and see what happens. You say, Pastor, aren't you afraid that people may pray that prayer and nothing will happen? You know what? I've never known anyone that sincerely prayed that prayer that has never had something not happen. In fact, just recently, a young man, he came, and he says, I just don't know if I believe in God. I said, why don't you pray, and why don't this person that's close to you pray and ask God to reveal himself to you? And he did several times throughout that week. In fact, he, he told his friend, he said, this is the only time I've really ever felt that, that God was literally speaking to me. God is real. And you see, the fact is, these apostles believed that he was real. They saw him walk in the flesh. They witnessed his resurrected body. And we may not be able to physically see Jesus today, but we see him all throughout the Bible. And you know what? He's still at work today. But many Christians don't believe that. And they do much of what they do in their own power and their own strength. And you know what? There's... A little power there, but because it's in their own power and their strength, there's not a lot of dynamis. But you know what? The Christian filled with God's power and God's strength, enabled in everything that they say and do with God's power and God's strength, there's power there. But many of us are stale because we don't believe that that wasn't the case in the lives of the apostles. And notice the extent of how Jesus' followers were to use the power of the Holy Spirit to witness. It says, And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, their city, Judea, their state, Samaria, their country, and the uttermost parts of the earth, their world. The gospel was literally to go out to absolutely everyone. You see, the apostles were to take it to everyone, no matter their language, no matter their nationality, no matter their creed, no matter their skin color, no matter their social status or economic status, no matter their political affiliation, amen? They were to be their witnesses to absolutely everyone. 
So my question is this morning, as we think of mothers who are life givers, purveyors of life, how are we giving the message of life today? How are we doing as gospel witnesses? Let me just say this. If this church ever loses sight of the fact that lives are not changed by programs and social activities, but by the gospel, close the doors. Board up the windows. Because it's not fulfilling the role that Christ has set aside his body. Literally, the body of Christ is to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the world. And if we lose sight of that, close the doors. Thirdly, Jesus not only encouraged them to wait and to witness, but he told them to watch. Notice what the Bible says in verse 9. It says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Now, it's interesting. A cloud was present when Jesus was transfigured. And once again, we see a cloud when Jesus is ascending up into heaven. As the disciples are watching Jesus being raptured from their presence, two angels tell the disciples that Jesus will come again in the same manner. It's interesting to note that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, which speak of the first phase of Jesus' second coming, the catching up of the saints or the rapture of the church, Jesus there too meets the saints in the clouds. Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the what? Clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. Revelation 1.7 says it this way, Behold, he cometh with what? Clouds. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, even so, amen. Now, Zechariah 14 speaks of another time when Jesus will appear at the end of the tribulation period, and the battle of Armageddon has been won, and he'll literally step his feet down on the Mount of Olives, just as we see the angel telling them, this same Jesus which is taken from you on the Mount of Olives, Acts chapter 1, is going to come in like manner. And here's what Zechariah 14 and verse 3 says. It says, the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall be removed towards the north and half of it towards the south. But until then, we watch. We watch. Not sitting on our hands, not holding down the fort, not motivated by fear, but watching in hope. Watching in hope. Looking for Jesus to come and redeem the world and to bring us true justice and to make all things new. We watch 
and we hope. In fact, here's what 1 Thessalonians tells us about watching. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. You know, ladies, that when the baby, you moms especially know, when the baby's coming, you ain't going to stop it. When the baby's coming, it's coming. Then the Bible goes on to say, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. You Christians are the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. In other words, every Christian ought to understand that the imminent return of Jesus Christ can happen at any time, and we ought to be ready. We ought to roll our sleeves up. We ought to be witnessing. We ought to understand that we only have so much time, and we only have so much life, and we only have so many days, and we ought to be doing everything we can to give people this message that has supposedly changed our lives. And so we wait. We witness and we watch. Carrying on, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they carried on. They waited, and they waited, and Jesus empowered them with the Holy Spirit, and they witnessed, and they witnessed, and they testified of the things that they had seen and heard, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place, and 3,000 people were saved in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 3, a beggar gets saved, and he comes to Peter, and he's asking for alms, and Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he was there his whole life, and nobody could deny that a miracle had taken place. And as a result, people got saved. And then in Acts chapter 4 and 5, they arrested Peter and John. And, and as they did, and they beat them, and they roughed them up a little bit, Peter and John said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You're telling us not to do this, but God tells us to do this. And they went on, and they carried on. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen is martyred. And as he's martyred, he says, Lord, lay not this sin against their charge. In Acts chapter 8, Paul is making havoc on the church. In Acts chapter Chapter 9, the Lord Jesus confronts Paul on the Damascus Road, and Paul gets knocked off his high horse and gets saved, and his life changes, and then he takes the gospel to the world. And so do the disciples and the apostles, and they literally turn the world upside down. They carried on, and these changed lives changed lives. My question to you this morning is, will we? Now, I understand it's not us that are changing lives, the gospel, the power of God. I understand that. But will we use the tools at our disposal? Will we speak of the things that we have seen and heard? In his book, how do you kill 11 million people? Andrew, Andy Andrews gives the story of how many of the local Germans knew that the Jews were being herded like cattle on the trains. 
that would ultimately lead to their deaths, but nobody would do anything to stand against the Nazis. And in his book, he gives an account of an eyewitness and writes, we heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because we felt, what could anyone do to stop it? So each Sunday morning, we would hear the train whistle blowing in the distance, and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sounds of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew that the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing the hymns as we were in church. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years passed, and no one talks about it now, but I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. You see, when people die today, the reality is there's only two places that they go. Those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those who do not know Jesus Christ, the Bible says they go to a place called hell. Not because God sends them there. God's done everything for people not to go to hell, so much so that he gave his only begotten son. But the Bible describes the place called hell as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm dieth not and the fire is never quenched. My dad, after I became a Christian, had grown up in a certain uh, uh, religion, if you will, and I presented Christianity to him, and he really wasn't apt to receive it because I, felt, I think he felt like he would be disowning his family had he become a Christian. And I would cry and pray that my dad would get saved. And I remember I would, I would go to bed and I'd have nightmares about my dad burning in hell. And I'd wake up and I'd take gospel tracts and I'd put him in his lunchbox and I'd put him in his car and I'd, I'd try to talk to him about Jesus Christ and he didn't, he didn't want to hear it from me. In fact, one time he said, I'll become a Christian when you clean your room. I was just a kid. So I cleaned my room. And I prayed, and I prayed. He would go to work, and he'd find gospel tracts in the bathroom at work. And he worked an hour and a half from where we lived. And he thought somehow I'd gotten there and put gospel tracts at work. But I prayed, and I prayed, and I was burdened for my dad. I wanted him to come to Jesus Christ. I knew that people without Jesus would spend eternity in hell. And I love my dad so much, I didn't want him to go to hell. I would hear his cries. And finally, one day, he was saved. And he's probably watching a service right now. 
But you know what? That type of a burden turned the world upside down. That idea that Christianity is life-giving, just as mothers are givers of life and purveyors of life, ought to permeate every heart of every Christian here. And yes, we need to wait. We need to wait on God. And yes, we need to witness. And yes, we need to watch. 